Welcome to 1.5 Celsius, a podcast that makes understanding the science behind the climate crisis simple. I'm your host, Kirthi, and I'll be talking about all things related to global warming and what you can do to help save our planet. Today we'll be speaking with cognitive psychologist Dr. John Cook, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Climate Change Communication Hub at the University of Monash in Melbourne, Australia. His 2013 paper on climate consensus gained attention from Barack Obama and United Kingdom Prime Minister David Cameron. He is also the founder of Skeptical Science, a website that helps raise awareness about climate misinformation. Dr. Cook's book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, was published in 2020. Um, Hello, Dr. Cook. Welcome to 1.5 Celsius. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm really excited to have you on here. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. So can you tell us a little bit about how you initially got into the field of climate psychology and denial? Because I know you do um, a lot of work with that. Yeah, it actually began um, having arguments with my father-in-law about climate change. I was, I was not actually involved in um, psychology or communication or even um, academia at that point. Like previous to that, like years earlier, I had studied physics at the University of Queensland. But at that time I was out of academia. I was doing actually graphic design and uh, cartooning as a, as, a, as a job, for, as a living. But then my uh, father-in-law start, at a get-together started arguing that climate change wasn't real, that it was a hoax, that uh, it wasn't human-caused. Then I thought, well, this sounds a little... I should go and investigate this. And I started researching the science of his arguments, or the lack thereof, because I found that there wasn't any science backing up his arguments. And as any son-in-law who is a little bit competitive and doesn't want to lose an argument with his father-in-law, I started researching the different arguments he was giving and what the peer-reviewed science said about each of them. Like a nerd, um, I got very systematic and built up a database of different myths and different different, um, relevant studies and eventually realized that other people might find this a useful resource as well. So I published the Skeptical Science website, debunking the most common myths about climate change And just that act of beginning to communicate climate science was the start of pulling me back into academia and eventually doing a PhD in psychology and communication. So you got into the psychology side before you went into academia or? Uh, So I guess um, the, the sequence of events was I started the website, I was offered a communication position at the, or or I applied for a communication position at the University of Queensland. Uh, And while I was doing the job of climate communication, my boss actually suggested, hey, um, you're doing a lot of research about this. Why don't you turn that into a PhD? Uh, Which was a very supportive and um, wonderful suggestion from my boss. And so, I, I actually did the PhD with the University of Western Australia, even though I was based at UQ, because the leading researcher in the country and one of the leading researchers in the world at the time was Stefan Lewandowski, who um, researched misinformation. He's the one who actually opened my eyes to the psychological research into debunking and misinformation. 
And so I, I asked if he would be my supervisor. Wow. That's really amazing. Um, so you talked a little bit about your website, Skeptical Science. So what initially, what came, gave you the idea to create a website? Yeah, so I was basically building a database of all the different climate myths that I might encounter the next time I had a, um, a lunch, a family lunch. And, and then just marshalling all the relevant scientific research. What were the key facts? How is the myth wrong? And I think um, at some point I realized that I'm not the only person with a family member who is um, skeptical about climate change or denying the science and figured other people will find this a useful resource, I think. Like, well, the reason why I did it myself was because that resource didn't exist. There were some debunking blogs or websites, like debunking climate myths, but they weren't, you know, rooted in the, the peer-reviewed science. Like, um, I, you know, as someone with a physics background, I wanted to go to the primary research and, and have an evidence-based um, response to each climate myth you know, based on peer-reviewed science. So I was basically creating something that I needed that didn't exist. And then went and figured other people might need that too. And so that's why I created the website. Oh, that's really admirable. Did it take you a long time? How long did it take to get everything set up and published? Uh, uh, it was, well, it was 2007, so it's deep in the oh. mists of time, but um, <laughs> I don't think it was that long because I just started with a very small number of myths and the idea was the website was always conceptualized as kind of an encyclopedic resource, like just here are the myths as evergreen kind of resources and um, here are the, here's the science. And then I would just, and then people said, well, you got a website, you should have a, have a blog on it. And I was like, oh, a blog as well. And so, um, but I decided the blog could be updates. So I'll, I'll just constantly be adding new content. So I got the website up pretty quick. It was, it was actually just a really flat, um, boring, you know, gray sort of early web kind of design. Um, and I was just putting it up there as raw content, but then somehow people started finding it without me. Do I don't even know how people started linking to it. Like, but um, but then I thought, well, I better clean this up a bit. And uh, I'm very lucky to have a very talented graphic designer as my wife. So oh, she wow. created she created the design in 2007, which we're still using. Um, it's it's looking a little bit out, you know, old fashioned now, like. But it's dated pretty well, given that, what is it, like 15 years on the web is, you know, a million years in, in, in terms of technology point of view. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, I would say, if it was from 2007 and it's still up today. Yeah, so did the impact you hope to have with your website, have you, has that changed at all or do you still have the same intention as you did when you created it? The general intent has always been um, counter misinformation about climate change. And um, 
or, or more going a little deeper, it's about removing a roadblock to climate action. Like we need to um, transition away from fossil fuels to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And misinformation has one purpose, delay that transition. Whether it's misinformation about the science or misinformation about climate solutions, it's always the same conclusion. Let's delay, let's not act, let's just maintain status quo for as long as possible. And while we began with a strong focus on science misinformation, uh, in, uh, there has been a steady transition over the last 15 years towards solutions misinformation. So um, science denial is becoming more untenable. It's harder to deny the science when it's becoming so obvious. We're, we're seeing it um, with our own eyes now, um, as well as all this, you know, the mountains and mountains of scientific research. And so it makes sense that strategically, the people who are trying to delay climate action are now strategically transitioning from science denial arguments to casting doubt on climate solutions. Right, because I think in the media, especially, we've seen um, a very different perspective on, I guess, um, climate denial in a sense. At first it was, oh, climate change doesn't exist. And then it was humans aren't causing climate change. And I guess now it's a lot more um, like how we should deal with it. And um, see, especially like from fossil fuel companies trying to push that their energy is still okay to use and a lot of greenwashing going on, I think. Um, that's probably reflected in your website as well. Yeah, we don't actually have much on greenwashing, but that's certainly a newer form of climate misinformation. And it's a, it's subtler, it's harder. It's harder for people to spot because it, it's often vague. Uh, often the telltale signs of greenwashing from, and to be clear, greenwashing is when Typically, industry, companies, businesses, or sometimes governments will um, downplay their, their polluting activities and um, try to magnify the, anything they're doing that's environmentally friendly. But um, typically, what they're doing is they are spending a tiny fraction of their budget on environmentally friendly activities like solar power or investing in renewables, while the vast, vast majority of their budget is going into fossil fuels. So you, an example would be a fossil fuel company saying, hey, we just spent $10 million on solar panels uh, while they've spent 99% of their budget on oil extraction or, or you know, burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's hard to spot that kind of stuff. You have to do a lot of digging to you know, understand wh what is their budget, what, what are the consequences of their activities. Um, science denial, climate denial is a lot easier it's kind of we've been swimming at the shallow end of the pool for, for the last 15 years but uh, now that misinformation is getting more subtle we're going to have to um tackle these harder more challenging forms mm, yeah for sure so i noticed that on your website you have something linked called the consensus project so could you summarize that a little bit yeah so a while back um but probably about 2011 i think uh, Jim Powell, who's a, a geologist, uh, and I met him, I think, at the American Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco, he suggested that um, it, was, it was time to do a consensus study 
the first consensus study was done in 2004 by Naomi Reskes, who, who looked at published papers about climate change. And I think she did a search for about 10 years of climate global climate change papers. Uh, there were about 900 or so papers, and she couldn't find a single paper rejecting human-caused global warming. And so she was saying there's a scientific consensus in the literature. There's, um, there's, there's no dissent in there. And so ten, it was almost 10 years on, and we decided let's let's repeat that analysis, but with a much bigger sample. She did 900 studies. We did a much longer time frame, and we broadened the search to not just global climate change, but also global warming. It ended up being 12,000 papers. Um, oh we didn't really realize what we were getting into, but we had to read, well, it, it was only the abstracts, but still 12,000 abstracts is a lot to read. Um, just like that first paragraph at the start of a paper. Yeah. But we read through all of them, identified all the papers that stated a position on whether humans were causing global warming or not. And, and found that 97% of those papers, about 4,000 of them, um, agreed that humans were causing global warming. So um, we concluded that in the literature, there was 97% consensus amongst the relevant climate papers that human-caused global warming was happening. We published that paper in the journal Environmental Research Letters in 2013. Um, I was... I was doing my, I was working at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. Um, the next morning I woke up and found that um, President Obama had tweeted about the paper and thought that's probably a big deal, right? Um, <laughs> and it turns out it was, it, it, it sparked a, a huge spike of interest in the research. Um, it got newspaper coverage all over the world, TV coverage. Um, I remember on the day that it came out, I did an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald about the paper. And then the next day, the same journalist called me and the, the second interview was all about, how did you feel when you found out that President Obama was like, I was like, who cares how I feel? The research is important, but this is, this is the kind of things that journalists, I, I, nowadays I notice a lot that journalists always ask people, how did you feel when you heard this or when this happened? And, it's, uh, it's all very touchy-feely, I think, journalism. Yeah, uh, congratulations. That's really amazing, though. Yeah, like it, the, there was a spike of very positive interest, which was followed very quickly by a spike in um, negative attacks by climate deniers trying to cast doubt on the research. There, there was attacks in newspapers, blogs, um, uh, there was several reports by conservative think tanks, which are a common source of climate misinformation. And the Republican Party in the US even flew an economics professor from the UK to Washington to and held a congressional hearing where they had him criticize our research. And then they issued a press release afterwards, the, the Republican Party saying that our research had been debunked. The, the important thing to point out about our research was we actually weren't the first study to find 97% consensus. There was a 2009 survey by Peter Doran that found 97% consensus amongst actively publishing climate scientists. And then a 2010 analysis by William Anderegg that similarly found 97% consensus amongst 
state public statements by climate scientists. So we were the third study to find an overwhelming consensus, but it was the first that kind of got more attention beyond just academic nerds. Um, I guess largely due to Obama giving it attention. And so it just got a, um, a lot of attacks. Uh, for, for a we, we've documented over 500 articles. Since your work is so involved in climate denial, how do you generally deal with the backlash that comes with that kind of publicity? It's different for different people. Because I have a psychology background, I reacted to it in a quite a unique way. Like my area of research is climate deniers and the psychology of denial. So when people are attacking me, that is actually interesting data. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't, I mean, that is the purely scientific way to look at it. It. I suspect it's probably also a psychological coping mechanism for myself. Like, because when people are attacking you, like that first year in 2013 was actually a bit tough. Uh, it's gotten easier over time, but um, I think that uh, finding, I guess, a, finding a way to put a bit of distance between me, the person, and the people who are attacking me by understanding it within that broader context that. This isn't about me personal. It's about um, people who deny climate change. Why do they deny it? And what are the methods that they use to deny it or to promote misinformation? And looking at it through that lens is a way to kind of, I guess, um, be a bit more dispassionate and about it and, and not get quite so, um, I guess, damaged by the attacks. That makes sense. So with that being said, what do you think are some of the most common arguments that people who deny climate change tend to use? We published a study late last year where we used machine learning to actually build a history of the most common arguments. And we found the biggest category of climate misinformation was, and again, coming back to that topic, attacking scientists and attacking climate science itself. So it wasn't those arguments, global warming isn't happening, global warming isn't real, the global warming impacts aren't that bad. It wasn't those kind of science-based arguments. It was more scientists are biased, climate models are unreliable, climate data is unreliable, just casting doubt on the field of climate science in order to reduce public trust of climate science. Oh, that's really interesting. So how do you tend to, how do we counter that specific type of argument? That's a really good question. And, um, and at this point, I'm going into the realms of speculation because there just isn't that much empirical research into testing ways to counter those types of myths. Uh, it's something we're working on, but uh, definitely it needs to be studied further. So my instincts are... Um, Firstly, the golden rule of debunking misinformation is you replace sticky myths with even stickier facts. It's not enough to show or explain how the misinformation is wrong. You need to show how it's wrong, but then replace it with a fact. If you're debunking the myth that the sun is causing global warming and you say, well, the sun can't be causing global warming because 
sun and climate, the sun has been cooling at the same time that climate has been warming. That shows that the myth is wrong, but then you need to replace it with an alternative explanation. Actually, um, increasing levels of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is causing global warming because greenhouse gases trap heat. So, so you take away the sun cores and you replace it with the greenhouse gas source. Um, so given that, then given that principle, how would you respond to a, a argument like climate scientists are biased, they're politically biased or they're motivated by money? Um, I, the approach I've taken in the past, for example, in my Cranky Uncle book, was to replace that myth that scientists are biased with the alternative explanation of what drives scientists. And, and it's scientists don't become scientists because they think they're going to get rich. Because if you look at how scientists dress or what they drive, they're, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're smart people that could be making a lot more money um, as, you know, in, in the stock market or, or, you know, in the economic sector. And in fact, I know one of the world's leading climate scientists, Andy Desler, used to be uh, like, I think, some kind of financial job where he made a lot of money. But then he switched to climate science and made a lot less money. Um, money is not the reason why. Um, the reason why scientists are interested you know, or become scientists is because they're curious. They want to push back the boundaries of knowledge. They want to discover things. They want to understand how the world works. And they want to make the world a better place. Uh, and so that's usually what I do. I, I, and finding scientists who can tell their personal stories can be a really powerful way of explaining what drives scientists. Similarly, when um, misinformation attacks climate science itself, whether it's climate models or uh, climate data like thermometer measurements, uh, I think that telling the story of how we do science can help counter those types of um, myths. So um, what is the scientific method? How do climate models work? How do we build our understanding? Um, and just, I guess, um, building people's awareness and understanding of the scientific method can help them trust science more and, um, and reduce the effectiveness of those kinds of myths. Oh, I see. So when you're responding to these arguments, how do you do it in a way that doesn't alienate or polarize the other side? Yeah, it's tough because climate change has become a very polarized topic. And even just talking about climate change can put people's backs up if they're like, culturally predisposed or if their political ideology predisposes them to reject climate change. So it's that is a tough one. Um, there are a couple of different ways that you can do it. One way, well, certainly ridicule is not a way to and a, a constructive approach. Making people feel stupid has never changed a person's mind. Um, so coming, if you're engaging with a person, if you're talking to them, um, taking an approach with empathy and curiosity and finding common ground, commonly held values is a, is a constructive way to do it. In terms of explaining how misinformation is wrong, what I've found is you can explain how misinformation misleads people um, 
without even bringing up climate change. I actually found one of the first experiments I did in my PhD, I wanted to debunk actually misinformation casting doubt on the scientific consensus. But the way I did it was I debunked misinformation from the tobacco industry that used the same rhetorical techniques. And so I was inoculating people against the general misleading technique rather than a specific myth. And I found that when I did that, and then I showed people the climate misinformation, the misinformation no longer misled people. Uh, and, it, and admit it was neutralized across the political spectrum. People to the left, on the left end of the political spectrum and on the right, conservatives and liberals. And so that tells us that everyone uh, is averse to being misled. Nobody wants to be tricked, whether you're, um, you know, vote for one party or, or the other party, um, regardless of your political leanings. And so explaining in general terms, the techniques used to mislead uh, can help neutralize misinformation. Oh, wow. So they're the same misleading techniques used across the board. So not just with climate change. Exactly, yeah. The example I used was tobacco. Um, then um, we developed a cranky uncle smartphone game that tended to be climate focused and talking about techniques in climate misinformation, but we're finding that it um, reduces their vulnerability to misinformation in other topics like vaccine myths. So um, the, if you boost people's critical thinking uh, and help them spot techniques, misleading techniques in general, that's like a universal vaccine against misinformation and can help them be resilient against misinformation across multiple topics. Oh, wow. So in specifically for the climate crisis, what do you think are the biggest sources of misinformation? With our machine learning research, we focused on conservative think tanks. So these are organizations that are pushing conservative political agendas. Um, and they have been a very um, prolific source of climate misinformation since the 1990s. Uh, and we had over 100,000 articles from them, um, which we, were, we analyzed using machine learning because there's so many articles that you really need to automate the process. All go mad. We, we chose automation. Um, we also used climate denier blogs because they're, again, a similarly prolific uh, form of misinformation. Um, and now we're in the process of branching out to social media and mainstream media, which are also prolific, um, not quite as meaty, but, um, but in terms of just like, just like sheer amount of content or depth of arguments, but they reach a lot of people. So uh, now we're looking, use, again, using machine learning to analyze those. Right. Okay. So what do you think makes these sources so convincing to people? So arguments that flow are convincing. Um, I, like they, they tend to be simple, but um, simple arguments that, that might be logically fallacious, but they just kind of resonate. Um, in fact, The Guardian just published an article overnight 
or yesterday that um, that looked at um, how all the cold weather in Australia currently is um, it led to a renewal of the um, cold weather this proves global warming myth. You know, like we've all had a cranky uncle say, well, where's global warming gone, you know, on a cold morning? Well, that's that keeps rearing its head. You know, it, it's just a simple argument. Um, and simple arguments like, um, you know, wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, so we need fossil fuel power. They're, they're just um, simple but misleading arguments, but simple arguments can be persuasive. And logical fallacies can be persuasive because people are typically not trained to be able to spot them. Um, as for these sources, like people have trusted sources of information, and usually we trust them because they um, they they we perceive them as being consistent with our values. We will watch, you know, TV um, shows or cable channels or websites um, or social media, or social media accounts that tend to tend to agree with us or, you know we agree with them so um, we just gravitate towards those and as the media landscape has fragmented over time it becomes easier for us to pick and choose where we get our content from and therefore more and more over time people are getting their information just from sources that they already agree with uh, so like confirmation bias Yes, definitely. And, and that can kind of create echo chamber type situations. So switching gears a little bit, what was it like to write your book, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change? It was challenging because I had two gears, um, the scientist and the cartoonist. And so every page had to have several cartoons and have, have I, I was very determined not to just have rivers of text. That would be quite intimidating for people. I wanted to break up the text with lots of humor um, to entice the reader's eye into every page. And it also meant I had to boil down the scientific facts to like concentrated orange juice. It was just um, very uh, dense, but, but readable. Uh, and so, as I'm going through the book, you, you're like science, 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 funny, funny, funny. And it, it was kind of like you're driving in fourth gear and then suddenly you have to flip and go into reverse gear and you're going, using completely different brain muscles. Um, and that constant switching back and forth was really challenging. Um, so uh, it was tough. <laughs> it was very rewarding at the end to have a book that was... Um, very I tried to make it as very dense as possible with content and a combination of climate science critical thinking work all the fallacies in the misinformation but also using as much humor as possible um uh yeah so it was challenging but rewarding at the end yeah so I think I think your book really synthesizes all those components really well but what made you decide to use cartoons I think that um, probably the, the the key moment for me was I was doing some critical thinking research with some philosophers from the University of Queensland 
we were deconstructing climate myths um, using all their critical thinking methods in order to identify what is the fallacy in each myth. And at some point they were explaining to me, there's a lot of different ways that you can explain logical fallacies to people. We do it in our philosophy classes. Um, but the method that they said had the, um, was really effective, especially for, uh, I guess, a general audience, was a technique called parallel argumentation. Take the original logical fallacy from the climate myth and transplant it into a parallel situation or an analogous situation. For example, the, let's look at the cold weather myth. Um, somebody says it's cold, what happened to global warming? Uh, or, you know, it's basically the logic is I'm feeling cold, therefore global warming doesn't exist. That is the same logic as, as a parallel situation where it's getting dark and the person says it's getting dark, the sun doesn't exist. <laughs> They're only looking at their immediate situation and ignoring the bigger picture. Um, and so when they um, pointed out this technique of parallel argumentation, I realized that this was a technique that stand-up comedians or late-night comedians used all the time. Uh, every night you hear them debunking whatever was said during the day that was false. And they'll say, well, this public figure said this, that's just like being in this situation. And then they use the same logic. And it's a very entertaining and accessible way of explaining how a statement can be misleading. And as someone with a background in cartooning, I realized that cartoons were the perfect delivery mechanism for parallel arguments. And so I started building up a library of cartoons, deconstructing all the most common myths about climate change. The Cranky Uncle book is basically all that work compiled together. Oh, that's that's awesome. So I guess your goal was really making it a lot more accessible instead of publishing it like an academic paper. Yeah, I'd already published several textbooks and, and lots of papers and book chapters. But this time I wanted to publish something that people would actually read <laughs> other than nerds, other than academics and scientists. So it, yeah, it was about um, making climate science and critical thinking accessible to people, um, but also creating all these resources, which I continue to use in lots of different contexts, whether it's social media or um, on web pages or in talks or in the Cranky Uncle game. Yeah, I think bridging the gap between academia and the general public is really important. So that's really cool. So currently at the Climate Change Communication Research Hub, what kind of research are you doing right now? Um, pretty much the same thing. It's about, there's two aspects. There's, it's about understanding climate misinformation and then coming up with solutions, like diagnosing the problem and then trying to solve it. So diagnosing the problem involves, for example, using machine learning model to be able to detect misinformation in different sources like mainstream media and social media. And then um, solving the problem, I'm focusing on critical thinking approaches and particularly um, the Cranky Uncle game is, a, is an example of combining 
the psychology, the critical thinking, the cartoons and the humor, along with game play elements. So by taking all that research and boiling it down into a game, what it's doing is it, is it motivates people to, to learn the techniques of misinformation and be able to spot them. But the gameplay elements motivate people to get further into the game. They, they level up. Um, as they level up, they, uh, their mood gets crankier. So they start being agreeable, then they get huffy, then they get peevish, then they get irritable. And so, so you're using just standard gameplay elements with a bit of humor to motivate people to get further into the game. But what you're really doing is, as they play longer, they're getting more inoculated against misinformation. Oh, I love that. That's such a fun way to educate people about different strategies. But just in general, for anybody speaking to that relative or that friend who is maybe skeptical about climate change, what general advice do you have to, for them to keep in mind? Is this um, the advice for the skeptical person or for someone talking to their... Oh, for someone speaking to the skeptic. Yeah, I, I think I would just repeat what I said earlier, which is um, empathy, uh, curiosity, and commonly held values. And, and another thing I'll add to that, patience. I had lots of talks with my dad about climate change. Um, he was also skeptical that it wasn't happening. And in the end, I kind of resigned that I wasn't going to change his mind. My PhD wasn't helping me. But, you know, so if, if a guy doing a PhD and how to convince a climate denier can't convince his own dad, then, you know, what hope does any of us have? But I didn't, I, I just, I think, um, eventually after years, he suddenly said, oh, yeah, I accept that climate change is real and we're causing it. And I was like, what? How, when did this happen? And, <laughs> and, I, and actually, I think I was late in my PhD at that point. And to me, this was kind of a Jane Goodall um, moment. Like, you know, I was walking amongst the, the, my, my subject of study and he was a chance for me to kind of peer under the hood. So I very casually said, so what changed your mind, Dad? And he said, oh, I've always thought this. And I was like, do you not remember the years of arguments <laughs> that we've had about that? Break? And um, yeah, so I think people can be, be even in denial about their own denial. That's just sort of one, one aspect of, of science denial. Um, but what I ended up, I think, trying to sort of deconstruct him in a black box kind of way. I think what happened was separate to our conversations about climate change, um, we also had talks about getting solar panels um, on his roof. And he was living and still is living in Queensland where they had quite generous rebates where if you had solar panels and you sent power back into the grid, you would get paid at triple the cost of electricity. So it was financially a no-brainer to um, to get solar panels. And once he crunched the numbers and worked that out for himself, he got the panels. Uh, and every um, time he got an electricity bill, it was actually a credit. He would be getting a check from the electric company. And he'd call me and say, guess how much I got from the electric company this time? Uh, and I think that typically we expect that the first step is always change a person's mind and then their behavior changes, but it can go in the other direction. His behavior changed first 
he began acting more environmentally friendly, although he always told me it wasn't for environmental reasons, it was for hip pocket reasons, but he was behaving more environmentally friendly. And then his beliefs changed um, afterwards. It, it can go in either direction, but generally we, we feel uncomfortable when our beliefs and our behavior contradict each other. It's called cognitive dissonance. And um, if one changes, then the other will change to come in line, in line with it. And it doesn't have to always be belief first. It can be behavior. So I guess the lesson there is, firstly, be patient. Uh, it's it, just sending the signal that you care about climate change can be sufficient. Uh, a, a social signal uh, can, can mean something to your friends and family. Um, you don't have to have that killer argument or you don't have to devastate them with some um, rebuttal that they have no answer to necessarily. It can just be, I care about climate change and, and be patient, be empathetic and, um, and yeah, be there. <laughs> oh, that's really amazing. I'm, I'm glad he came around. Yeah, yeah it was good. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, I've told that story before, and um, I told it to Catherine Hayhoe, who's a quite a famous climate scientist in the US. And then she wrote a book and, and wrote a chapter about him. And um, uh, and then last Christmas, I, actually, I, I got a copy of the book and I gave it to my dad for um, as a Christmas present, because so, he'd been nagging me. Has that scientist friend of yours written that book about me yet? So, um, so he finally got the chapter all about him. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. But yeah, um, that is all I have for you today. But thank you so much for your time. I think that was, I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners did too. It was my pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to follow it so that you don't miss any future updates and share it with anybody who might be interested. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify to help support the show. See you next time.